0: Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen O'Day, and welcome to the Immuno-Oncology Curve, a podcast produced by Agenis. Agenis is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company that discovers and develops immunotherapies for cancer. I'm the company's chief medical officer. I joined Agenis after a long career as a medical oncologist, focused on the clinical development of immunotherapies. My guests and I aim to keep you ahead of the curve on the latest in immunotherapy. We also share a common goal, which is to lengthen the survival curve for patients with cancer, and a common conviction, which is that immunotherapies are uniquely poised to make such progress happen. Please follow The Immuno-Oncology Curve, a podcast, but more importantly, a path, we believe, to much better outcomes against cancer. This is episode three of the Immuno-Oncology Curve, and our goal is to offer highlights and a recap of ASCO Gastrointestinal Cancer Symposium, just concluded in San Francisco last month. So far on the podcast, I have hosted an outside medical immuno-oncology expert, and then a wonderful group of advocates and patients. On this episode, I am very happy to welcome two of my own colleagues at Agenus. They are Dr. Joe Grossman, widely known as GI Joe, our Vice President of Early Clinical Development, and Benny Johnson, who recently joined us as Senior Medical Director, straight from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Joe, Benny, and I were all on location together at ASCO GI this year. Welcome, gentlemen. Before we dive in, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear from both of you a little bit about your backgrounds and why you left fulfilling medical practices to come to Agenis. Benny, let's start with you. As a medical oncologist and GI expert at MD Anderson, you were actively treating patients, making a difference in people's lives who found themselves battling an incredibly scary disease or group of diseases. So what attracted you to Agenis? What do you see in us?
1: Thanks Stephen, so happy to be here and thank you for this opportunity. Um, you know, I think to understand, you know, what brought me to a genus, um, you know, I think you need to understand a little bit about, you know, how I even became an oncologist. You know, I was a third year medical student and unfortunately I had to walk through the process with my own mom after being diagnosed with pancreas cancer. You know, at that time, nobody in our family really understood um, what oncology was and um, I had to become that, that point person, unfortunately. And in that process I was able to meet a GI oncologist at Fox Chase who had a tremendous bedside manner who knew the data and actually you know offered my mom clinical trials and so that early love for clinical investigation and innovation and how that partners with oncology was critical to my future path you know fast forward you know to being a GI oncologist at MD Anderson I was there for the last 6 years I had a tremendous experience there I was some of the best mentors I've ever uh, been able to experience um, and learn from and so I consider a lot of those those guys my friends and as I come here now it's, it's kind of an interesting story you know the last six years I was really involved with clinical investigation colorectal cancer um, and as you know the the bulk of our patients have a type of colon cancer that does not respond to immunotherapy and after offering you know uh, different treatments to our patients it comes to a point where there's this question with our patients well well what's next and the sad reality is you know, we have limitations. And even as of today, we have tremendous limitations. Um, interestingly enough, um, some of our own data uh, through some of the in- investigational trials that we ran, we saw this very um, peculiar difference in response to immunotherapies based on the site of where the cancer was. So different sites responded differently. And that was very intriguing to us. And in our own data, we showed that the lung responds differently than the liver. And this made not tremendous sense in the beginning, but it was extremely important. And I think that became a factor that many of us as investigators in the oncology community started to notice. And we started to think about trials that were based on site of disease. And, uh, Agenis was kind of referred to me by a mentor, uh, Dr. Mike Overman, and he said, Hey, we should really talk to this company. They are moving towards site specific clinical trial design with their IO, and we've seen this signal. And it's almost like uh, things worked perfectly. And I got to meet G.I. Joe. Uh, the first time I met G.I. Joe, was, <laughs> it was at an investigational meeting. I was actually had the opportunity to be an investigator in the phase two, so I got firsthand uh, knowledge with the drug. But I got to be honest, I met Joe and his passion. And where the company was headed based on what they were doing uh, seemed to me to be as a pioneer for the field and and as an oncologist you're right I mean I love talking to patients I love talking to families getting to know their story and helping them meet milestones in their lives um, but there's also a point where you also want to um, expand your um, your experiences and the importance of clinical trials was um, exposed to me at an early age with my own mom and I wanted to kind of be a part of that process, and it just seemed like the timing uh, for me to join Agenis made sense, especially with the move towards site-specific immunotherapy trials. And so here we are.
0: Well, we're certainly uh, glad to have you on board as part of the team. As we say at Agenis, patients first, and patients are waiting. Uh, we know that very well. We've heard I've heard a lot of uh, uh, investigators in the GI community, as I've got to learn about them in, the, in recent years, have that sort of... Um, burnout from from IO because the tumor types have been so resistant and so cold compared to where I uh, had my main career in melanoma, and uh, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, some of these lessons about sites of disease being preferential with IO we learned from melanoma. It's been quite gratifying to see these observations now in the in the GI space. But but it, you're not the first to sort of comment that. You know, we've, we've had a lot of uh, immuno-oncology clinical trials in the GI space that have failed miserably, and there was something people were seeing differently with abotensilumab and balstilumab, our investigational drugs that is in the Agenus pipeline. So we're grad, glad to have you and your expertise, and I think compassion and, and personal experience uh, is very meaningful to us as a company. So, Joe, GI Joe. <laughs> Um, you've been here a little longer. Actually, you're here a, a couple months before me. So I consider that old, but, uh, now you're about three and a half years or so here. You left, uh, you know, a budding career at Beth Israel in, in Boston, uh, in the lab, as well as the, the clinic. Why, why are you here? <laughs> well,
2: Steve, I think, um, first of all, People are, are important. And I, I love the people I worked with before. I love the people I work with now. Um, I love taking care of, of patients. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll back up to give a little background on what I was doing before I came here and kind of how it, how it led me here. So I, I was at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center um, in Boston, Harvard Medical School, had a very fulfilling career. Um, teaching, doing translational research, and really enjoyed, you know, like like you and, and Benny, the time just kind of one on one with patients in the room. And as a as a GI oncologist, treating primarily patients with you know metastatic, late stage pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer. You know, unfortunately, most of my patients um, they, they didn't live very long um, when I met them for the first time. Uh, often we had to sit down and talk about prognosis and i would offer some therapy and say you know this is palliative this is this is something we can do to make you hopefully feel better or live longer uh, but it's not it's not going to cure you and that, of course that was difficult day in and day out um we had a few successes but most of the times we didn't get the outcomes that we wanted and when i was training you know, we, we saw patients uh, with, with melanoma and, and kidney cancer and other diseases um, where you kind of, you know, pioneered the way. And those patients were being cured. And of course, you know, that's, that's ultimately what I wanted for, for my patients. Um, the, the, the lab research that I was doing was initially focused more on kind of selecting what's the right chemotherapy for the right patient. But uh, as, as you often say, it's, it's moving chairs around on the Titanic because those, those chemotherapies, the outcome is, is all the same. It's just you know a difference of a few months, again, for patients who have late-line metastatic disease. And so we were growing patients' tumors in a, in a dish called organoids. We were testing the chemotherapies. We saw that we could you know, start to predict what might work and what might not. But then when we started to introduce immune cells into those cultures and see how could we tweak them to get them to recognize and attack the cancer... Well that, that's that's really kind of what excited me but I, I think the the limitation was in the clinic the, the available treatments and even the trials that we had for these diseases, that That's not what was happening. We were not for years, effectively getting the immune system to recognize and attack these cancers and eradicate them. So th- there's been, like you said, tremendous pent-up demand in in, in people for, for patients and for people who treat these diseases um, to get the immune system to 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 work. Um so three and a half years ago, I was introduced to a and I, I saw this incredible toolbox of of novel, investigational therapies that I where I saw potential to do exactly this and the tumors that we were treating if we could just figure out how do we combine them who are the right patients to treat how do we study this and and, and show this and so I, I I you know like I said I love treating patients um I, I I miss that but I saw a different opportunity in my life to say well if, if I can do this job well there's the potential to help you know Thousands, billions of patients, not just the person in, in front of me. And so the last three years here have just been, you know, beyond a dream come true to show, uh, begin to show that um, the potential of immunotherapy in diseases like colorectal cancer and, and pancreatic cancer.
0: So full circle, I'm here for a similar reason. You know, I spent a, a, it seems like a lifetime, but a career in, at the forefront of melanoma, obviously a disease that is very much more immunologically active, where we made some profound progress in the last 10 or 15 years where we're curing now more than half of of widespread melanoma and we've then brought these same therapies into earlier forms of the disease uh, and with even better results. Uh, so I've watched that, I also understood the the gaps of where the, the, may, the 70, 80 percentage cancers that didn't benefit. And I was the, uh, on the forefront of this bot- botansilumab uh, combination as an investigator in the clinic. Um, so let's talk about colorectal cancer, um, and ASCO GI in San Francisco, obviously a major meeting for the year, uh, with gastrointestinal experts from around the world. Uh, All types of therapies are discussed. Immunotherapy, which had been a relatively small piece of the meeting over the years is gaining traction.
2: We know historically from immunotherapy, across fields is that as you get to an earlier stage of disease, it tends to be even more effective. We we see signs of efficacy in the late-line setting where patients have exhausted all available therapies, and now we're going to the other end of the spectrum, patients who are newly diagnosed, where it has the potential to be even even more effective and help
0: more patients. And And given the incidence of colorectal cancer, do you want to just talk a little, or Benny, maybe you can comment on... You know, there's an epidemic going on. There's a lot in the press right now about early onset. So as you move treatments that might have more effectiveness from late line to early line, but particularly in colorectal, maybe just give the audience some perspective on the impact this could have.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's actually been quite alarming, right? You know, I think the, the media is more aware now about the rise in young onset colorectal cancer among patients less than 50 years old. The reality is we've actually been seeing this rise about 2% per year since about the 1950s. And so a lot of epidemiologists suspect there's an exposure that is causing this rise, but we don't have a good, clear understanding as to what it is. What we do know today is that, you know, 45 is the new 50 in terms of getting your screening colonoscopy because of this rise. And uh, there's been a lot of um, focus on this. You know, Even at GI ASCO, the the keynote plenary session was given by Dr. Kimi Yang about the rise in young onset colorectal cancer and the impact that it's having so we were part of that you know a lot of centers have come up now um, and, sh- and kind of focused on this need to really um, bring patients to the fact that this is something that we need to be thinking about uh, as of 2020 this was just released um, colorectal cancer is the number one, is going to be the or actually is the number one cause of death among young men Um, And and that's concerning, you know, and that's new. And so efforts now, you know, bringing the treatments, you know, novel therapies such as immunotherapy to the forefront, as Joe alluded to, is critical because now we're talking about patients that are in their 30s and their 40s and exposing them to treatments, our standard treatments such as chemotherapy and radiation and, and kind of body altering surgeries. You know, that's a huge impact on them physically, but also emotionally. And then you think about it, 30s, 40s, forties—you know, that's the prime of your career building. That's the prime of parenting. You know, and now you're talking about taking six months off for treatment. So this is, this is um, extremely exciting if we're able to innovate in this space for patients. Because now, you know, as you know, um, standard chemotherapies um, come with a lot of side effects. Most of those side effects are things like neuropathy, um, and, and these can be debilitating for young patients, for any patient, but especially someone that's got to type on their keyboard every day or, or pick up their phone or, or, or you know kind of play with their kids. So, so this is the time to really revolutionize treatment. And so um, this, is, this is a critical time for us, and I think um, it's really great that we're focusing on the young onset and kind of thinking about how we can innovate in this space.
0: So Joe, Benny sort of set the problem. We have a major epidemic of colon cancer. It reminds me of the melanoma days because median age of onset for melanoma was 40s and 50s, two decades before most solid tumors. So to Benny's point, we had devastating diagnosis with advanced disease, with people in the primes of their lives, with young children. I lived that for really 30 years in the clinic and saw the transformation with IO. So what excites me about this is there's a huge problem with this disease. It's getting younger, not older. The treatments that we, the existing
2: treatments that we're discussing, uh, can have a particularly bad effect on, on young women. Um, I, you know, I mentioned earlier my my personal experience treating patients. You know, many of whom I remember like they're in front of me right now. And then, you know, unfortunately, uh, more recently, I've also had the experience of being a family member of, in this case a young woman with this disease, my, my wife's twin sister, um, who has just been, you know, battling this valiantly. Um, she went through neoadjuvant therapy and through surgery, and she's recovering from that now. Um, but uh, there are issues, you know, specific to, to, to young women, you know, in, in her case, she was able to avoid radiation, which was wonderful. But, you know, remember that the, the area we're talking about, especially rectal cancer, it's... Uh, it's delicate, kind of expensive real estate in the in the body yeah. with the nerves that go through there, the bodily functions that are that are involved. And so, you know, whether it's surgery or radiation or or both, um, these treatments can be curative for some patients, unfortunately, not for all, but even but those patients who are cured as you, you mentioned, they can, you know, from the chemotherapy, you can end up with neuropathy that causes numbness, tingling in the hands that can sometimes interfere with, with, with work, as, as Benny was talking about. But the, the local treatments, the surgery and the radiation um, in, in anyone, but especially in, in young women, can interfere with, with sexual function, with bowel function, um, and really
0: with, with quality of life in, in, in many ways. So I'm we're all excited to see a little more treatment on a little longer observation where these cold tumors... Uh, Because obviously for both colon cancer and rectal cancer, uh, dramatic shrinkage of tumors before an operation could be quite... Uh, predictive of long-term yep. benefit.
2: Exactly right. So there's the excitement around the patients clearing the, the circulating tumor DNA, the CT DNA, which is, is you know, starting to be shown that, that that's very prognostic when you can clear that, that cancer is much
0: less likely to come so, back. So let's set, that's a perfect segue to the, to the second half of this. And that's uh, for the audience. So let's talk about circulating tumor DNA. It's a, it's a conceptually, what is it? And it's being used now in a number of different malignancies, some more than others for technical reasons. But colorectal, maybe lung, are two types of major cancers where maybe this technology is most advanced. It's picking up DNA from the tumor in the bloodstream. And just tell, because this was a focus, there was a lot of data, and then, Benny, I'll have you sort of... Summarize the data. There was a, there was a whole session, a, a plenary session, uh, sort of around this topic. So why, why is it important if it is? What are the pros and cons? And how will it help us develop drugs?
2: Well, I, I think the, the ultimate goal is to cure as many patients as possible with as little toxicity as possible, right? So the, the sooner you can show you're doing that, the better, right? So people are looking into all sorts of ways to say you're going down the right path, and and one of those is this circulating tumor DNA. So, cancer. How does it get there? Yeah. Right? Uh, so, so you know, a cancer cell is genetically different than the other cells in the body, and so when it dies, its bits of DNA are released into into circulation, um, and they can be picked up with a very sensitive blood, blood test. Exactly, and. and um, these tests have become very sensitive, and there's been a lot of work done, you know, by by various companies and investigators, especially in colorectal cancer, to show that, you know, quite often when the cancer is present, you can pick up the circulating tumor DNA.
1: Yeah, you know, it's 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 really exciting, as Joe Joe mentioned. You know, ctDNA, I think we can clearly confidently say is here to stay in in, in GI cancer and in cancers in general, as we learn, because this idea of what we like to call minimal residual disease, kind of really following patients outside of just a scan. The initial data actually showed that, you know, scans are waiting until cancers get large enough, what we call gross size, that they can actually be picked up and measured on a CT scan, right? So the problem is when we get to that point, the damage is already done. The beauty here is that initial data with ctDNA DNA show that you can actually pick up ctDNA in the blood almost eight to 16 months before a CT scan can and that's exciting right now that gives us this window of time where we're able to as Jill mentioned intervene early before the cat's out of the bag right and that's what's revolutionizing oncology you know the initial data sets have been really encouraging you know the um, the circulate Japan or the galaxy study this is the kind of an observational study that shows us that we can really prognosticate what does that word mean essentially that just means you know, predict or kind of think about an outcome for a patient based on a blood test. And we can really see that patients, you know, stages two to four that have clearance of their CTDNA have better outcomes. Patients that are CTD negative to begin with outside of a traditional surgery, they may not need after surgery chemotherapy that we have been exposing patients to for three to six months. All patients get the same treatment. What ctDNA is doing is allowing us to truly personalize the therapy, and so we've had data sets. Now we've had the dynamic data sets saying that hey, maybe some stage two patients, you know, they, they they don't actually don't suffer if we don't expose them to chemotherapy if they're ctDNA negative. This galaxy data set from our you know from our colleagues in Asia are showing us that we can really prognosticate or or differentiate outcomes of patients just based on the blood test. Unfortunately, Stephen, though you did mention well. The thing is, this these assays are growing; they're evolving. There was also the presentation of the Cobra study, which was looking at low-risk stage two colorectal cancer and whether the utilization of a a, a ctDNA assay could help us kind of um, decide who could get away with chemotherapy and not. And unfortunately, you know that study was not able to really kind of pan out because of the evolving space of the assay. And so I think there's more questions, you know, there's more questions that need to be answered. But I think CTDNA really allows us to give patients a personal glimpse into where their cancer is headed for them as an individual.
0: So listening to you, could I safely say that we are at, we got to the moon, but we haven't gotten to Mars yet with, with the uh, CTDNA?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's more growth there. You know, I think um, we have varying assays, but I think the big key is and There's this tumor-informed assay that I think that a lot of us believe is kind of the future of, of the assay, and, and those show to have increased sensitivity and specificity. And so there's definitely limitations. I think the point is, I wouldn't think of it as an—it's almost like an, an additional tool in our toolbox. You know, no one's going to just look at one test to make a decision about a patient. However, this adds something that a— CT scan does not add. It adds something that a tumor marker does not add. It gives us a whole picture. We still have to look, be, be physicians, be oncologists, look at the pathology report, look at your patient, talk with them. Dr. Kasi did present the bespoke data, which is the first U.S.-based kind of, um, kind of parallel to what Galaxy is doing, essentially looking at just observationally uh, CT DNA's impact in terms of predicting outcomes for patients. And part of that, that that um that data he also showed kind of patient surveillance patient survey as to how they felt this test made them feel that it increased anxiety actually most patients actually were kind of glad they had a test that was more personalized to them that could provide some additional information
0: well this has been a, a amazing conversation joe i i have to finish with you um you have uh come you know to a genus we have been partners together for for three and a half years Um, my passions and your passions are aligned. You're probably very tired of hearing my lessons learned from melanoma. Um, But what excites me is these lessons learned um, are universal, I think, and immunotherapy is a potentially uh, a sort of agnostic to tumor types, because it's not about specifically the tumor, but it's about building the immune system that then kills cancer. Now, I'm, I'm forward thinking here because uh, historically some cancers have been much more responsive. But I'm imagining a future in which robust immune activation uh, with short bursts of sort of treatment to the cancer to, to break it up can cure a much broader uh, range of, of diseases. And obviously pipelines like Agenis that are addressing this unmet need are going to be important. But lessons learned, like, um, just give me your take on what, as, as a GI oncologist who hadn't been in the IO field, uh, how do you see it now?
2: I, I see it in a, in a much more optimistic light than I used to, because <laughs> um, I think we've, we've gotten a, a glimpse of some of these early patients who are having long-term survival, um, you know, in, in immunotherapy people have have talked a lot about the tail of the survival curve that's a that's a lesson learned when you treat patients with traditional anti-cancer medicines and they have advanced metastatic disease to begin with unfortunately almost all of them die at a regular rate so if you look at the survival curve it's just It's like a slope that just goes down to, to zero. But with the introduction of these new medicines to treat the immune system to recognize the cancer, well, the immune system is really the only thing that can outsmart the cancer. The cancer evolves, um, like bacteria in a dish, when you, when you you know it develops resistance to whatever you're treating it with, but the immune system also evolves and can keep going after it, and that has resulted in this tail of the survival curve. Patients who are alive long term,
0: and we've talked a lot about yeah the shape of these curves, which was a real lesson learned in melanoma, that more treatment uh, is not always better. Uh, in fact, a limited exposure of an effective IO agent. Uh, can lead to long-term benefit, that patients actually can be off treatment and continuing to respond and benefit. Benny, any um, closing comments about our discussion today or just some reflections?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's it's really exciting. You know, I think as we Kind of align these two areas of, of growth, CTDNA and immunotherapy. You know, you mentioned how scans can really not kind of explain the whole story. You know, we talk a little bit about pseudo progression, meaning that first scan that a patient exposed to an immunotherapy um, uh, gets actually shows that things are growing, a lymph node's growing, and we're confused, but the patient feels better, and, and we're kind of just not entirely sure yet. You know, CTDNA may help us, right? This test where we can kind of look at a number that changes and decreases in the midst of a scan they might might allow for us to better understand how these immunotherapies are working since we're not just depending on a scan that may not be showing us the whole picture so so i think that's really um important to kind of also think about and i think that's why it's really exciting you know i I was also really encouraged by the nest one um cohort it was it was a nice diverse population i was really excited to see that you know diversity in clinical trial enrollment is extremely difficult right i mean Usually patients that are entering clinical trials are, are coming from kind of affluent backgrounds Are able to fly all across the country and get the best opinions, the first, second, and third. But, but the actual you know, uh, person down the street is not able to have access to trials. And, and disparities in colorectal cancer is a huge problem. It was actually a really interesting abstract. Um, so I would say Dr. Kasi's NEST1 is actually not the norm. Um, I think most patients are, are, we don't have a diverse population. It was actually a very interesting abstract at GI ASCO about kind of pooling all the swag, which is a cooperative group um, that look, that kind of runs trials across the country. And they pulled many GI cancer trials together. And they actually saw there was still a huge disparity that minorities are probably less than 9% of cl- clinical trial enrollment. And that's a huge issue. And so I think addressing this in our, you know, our approach as a company and as a community and in oncology is, is really critical i know our patient advocates are focused on this so that's pretty exciting you know furthermore we also know that you know there are certain races that do, that have a tough time we know that the african american population are high risk for for colorectal cancer and we also have seen uh, there was a nice abstract from md anderson that showed that um, African-American population has a more diverse and kind of a higher incidence of k um, KRAS mutations and PIK3 mutations and these very aggressive genomic differences. And so they 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 need to have access to these trials as well, too. So I think us focusing as a company on, on these aspects would also help us moving forward.
0: Thank you. And obviously, as the chief medical officer of the company, couldn't be prouder to have you two as guests. Um, uh, who would have thought that uh, We'd be doing podcasts a few years ago talking about the shape of immunotherapy curves. But, you know, uh, Agenis has a deep uh, and exciting pipeline. We, we clearly understand the potential, as I like to say, the, the adaptability, the power, and the memory of the immune system. You know, and, and our therapies are really focused on how do we turn the switch to allow this powerful, adaptive, flexible Uh, system that protects us from so much, meaning the immune system, how can we use it in the battle to cancer? And not to sort of pound the cancer directly with poisons, but to really figure out a way to combine the best approach through the immune system. So thanks for being with me today, and I'm sure I'll have you guys back. Thank you. Thank you. Joe and Benny, thank you for joining me on the Immuno-Oncology Curve. It's fair to say that none of us took this job expecting to be a podcast host or guest, but you guys were superb. Please consider joining me again. And to our audience, thank you for your interest. Keep the feedback coming and please check back again. If you go to my profile on LinkedIn and click to follow me, you'll always know when there's a new episode as we illuminate the potential of immunotherapies and follow the curve to better outcomes against cancer.